0: Okay, so here's what we are, uh, here's what we're doing, and this is what we're doing for basically the whole summer and um, 12 weeks. This is our third week. Uh, what, what we're doing is just talking about what what is this church about? So about two years ago in my uh, house, in my basement, which is kind of creepy, but in my uh, house, we started just talking about the idea of starting a new church and what that means and what's that, what's that about, and uh, many of you weren't there, and uh, many of you were there, and don't remember any of it, and that's great. So we're just kind of refreshing. What is this church about, and what is this idea of true life? What does that mean, and and what is the kind of people that God is calling us to be in this city as a, as a new church, as a new expression of God's people? What what is it all about? So that's that's what we're what we're talking about. Kind of the foundational core beliefs of this church that we believe um, that really is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, but just the, the core beliefs that we have, okay? And so here's what we talked about the first two weeks. The first week we talked about, and, and you can get these online if you want to kind of catch up and um, see what, what we've been talking about. So the first two weeks, here's what we talked about. The first week is this, that God saves us, not because of anything we do, but just because of who he is as a gracious God, because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. And that sin our rejection of God, our rebellion against God, ever since the beginning, what it has done is created guilt. And I'm not talking about a feeling of guilt. I'm talking about real guilt. Like we are guilty before God. It creates guilt and it creates shame where we all of a sudden have lost a sense of identity because we separated ourselves from God. But what Jesus does is that he forgives us dealing with the guilt and he also gives us his righteousness. And I don't have time to explain all that because that sounds weird. He gives us his righteousness, but you got to go back and listen to it. If, if you don't know what that means, that's okay. Um, that He gives us his righteousness, which takes care of our debt. But it also, if you think about it in a, in a bank analogy, forgiveness is God wiping away the debt and putting us to zero. But God giving us his righteousness is our bank account is absolutely full. So there's no guilt and there's no shame. And that Jesus does that not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. Um, Christianity is scandalous in that it's the only thing out there that says it's not the good people that go to heaven, it's the bad people that go to heaven. I mean, that's really weird, right? Like, I hope, even when I say that, some of you are like, well, that's not true, that's blah, blah, Because it, it's scandalous. But that's what it is. Christianity is the only thing that says good people don't get into heaven, bad people do. People that say, I need somebody to save me. I am bad, help me. I have need, I need you. I need a savior. I can't do it on my own. That's the gospel. For people that are self-righteous, that's horrible. But for people that know I need something, that's beautiful news. Gospel means good news. And it's good news. If you know that you're a sinner and you're a mess and and you need help, then Christianity says good news. Good people don't get in. Bad people do. But I'm too bad. Exactly. Then you're even more qualified. Come on in. Okay, That's what we talked about the first week. Second week, what we talked about, what did we talk about second week? Second week, what we talked about was this. Okay, I got it. Second week, what we talked about is that it's not just forgiveness. So a lot of times, even if you've been in the church for a long time, if you've been a part of, um, if you grew up in the church and you went to Sunday school and you had felt bored and you did all sorts of Christian fun things, great for you, okay? Not I did too. But here's sometimes what we hear. The message of Christianity is this. God forgives you of your sins. That's true, That is true, okay? It's a beautiful reality. But why does he do that? This is what we talked about last week. And what Peter says, and what the whole Bible teaches, but kind of the classic verse that I love uh, that explains this, is Peter says that Jesus died, the righteous, that's him, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's all of us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the whole point of Christianity. The whole point of what God is after is that God wants our joy. Again, this is very scandalous compared to other religions, is that God's passion is that we would have joy, that we would have life. And so he gives us the very best thing that he can think of, which is himself. That he forgives us only so that he can get us to him. That's the whole thing. He says, I want to get you to me. I want you to have the most joy possible, so I give you my very self. Okay, that's what we talked about last week. Again, if that's an idea to you that's like, huh, that doesn't sound like what I heard, you can um, check it out online. Okay, so that's the first two weeks that we talked about. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. The Christianity, the whole thing, is person-centered. It's focused on a person, not just principles to live by. Principle-centered, okay? That's kind of uh, a concept that I like to use to help categorize the different ways of thinking about things. So tonight, then we talk about this. That's all great, right? Everything we talked about the first two weeks. Good news, it's awesome, but if you're a Christian, or even if if you're not a Christian, I'm sure this is true as well, life is still hard, right? We don't just go, man, God saved me, that's awesome, it's all about Jesus, and he brings me into a relationship with himself, and look, my life is beautiful and perfect now, right? It's still hard. We still have struggles, we still have toil, we still have trouble, We we still do things that we wish we didn't do. Am I alone in that? Okay, blank face. So I do things that I wish I wouldn't do, right? You guys don't, but what I do is things I wish I wouldn't do. We still do, right? There's still frustrations that we have. There's still identity crisis we have of who am I? And we still feel guilt and we still feel shame. Well, there's relational conflict still, right? I mean, all of a sudden you don't become a Christian and now I get along perfectly with everybody, right? Okay, you guys do again, but I don't. I need at least an amen on that one or something, okay? So thank you, Gene. So we, we, we don't, I mean, not everything goes perfect when you become a Christian, right? You still have trouble. You still have struggle. You still have sin. You still fight. Things aren't just magically done and perfect, right? So why, why do we still have problems? What causes the frustrations, the anxiety, the, the, even the just sense of unfulfilledness? What causes that kind of stuff? And if, if you're not a Christian here today and you're just checking things out, that's awesome. We're glad to have you. And this is the same thing. Like if you ask and think about your life, man, why do I still have trouble? Why do I still, why, where does all this trouble in my life come from? Where do the problems in my life come from? And I'm not talking about external things, like why do bad things happen to you? I'm just talking about like, why do I, why do I have unfulfilled longings? Why do I worry about things? Why am I scared of things? Why do I get down about things? Why do I have relational problems? Like, what, what is the problem? What's the problem? That's the question we talk about tonight. And I know that's kind of broad sounding, and it's intentionally so. Just what is our problem? Maybe I should have worded it. What's our problem? Or maybe another way to think about this is this, for those of you that are Christians, or even, again, not, is how, how do we grow? How do we become the kind of person that God's calling me to be? I mean, Christians, we know that we're supposed to be more and more and more like Jesus over the course of our lives. How does that actually happen? How do I become a more loving person, a more gracious person, a more patient person, a more joyful person? How does that happen in our lives? Because if you're like me, or probably the person next to you, you still struggle with stuff, right? There's still hardship. There's still problems. The things that you know you should do, you still sometimes don't do. The things you know you shouldn't do, you still sometimes do do. Okay, yes, I said doo-doo, because that's what it's like when you do things you shouldn't do, right? So that's why that word exists, okay? So what, why does this happen? God brings us to himself, okay? So in God's grace, not because of what we do, but because of what he does, he saves us. And the whole point of that is he wants to bring us to himself. But then how do we become people that actually live that out, that live out the reality, I've been brought to God? How does that happen? Why is it that we still experience problems where that's not the case? And how do we grow to be the kind of people that actually live as if we've been brought to God, as if we've been saved? How do we do that? What is the problem? That's what we talk about tonight, okay? Now, here's what the Bible says the problem is. And if you just do a survey of Christians and people that are not Christians, people that have no faith, and just ask, what's the problem? Like, you look around at the world, and there's obviously a problem right? What is the problem? What causes conflict? What causes all the different issues that people have? What, what, what is the problem? You can, you can get a lot of different answers from biology to your upbringing to your social environment, all sorts of things, and there's all sorts of factors. But what does the Bible say is the problem? And here's how the Bible describes it. Well, here's how it describes it. You guys didn't, did you not read that fast? Here's what it says. This is in Romans. This is what Paul says. This is the theme throughout the Bible. And I'll just say it up front, and then we'll talk about it. It's idolatry. It's that we worship other gods. Okay, now let's, exp- let's talk about what this means. Here's-, here's what Paul says. Don't read ahead on me, because I'm going to explain a couple things, okay? So here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Okay? Here's what he says. What's the problem? And here's what he says. God has wrath, which means anger and judgment, Against what? Against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, that's what maybe we would typically think of. What's the, what's the problem? Well, it's sin. It's bad things. It's unrighteousness. It's ungodliness. And Paul says, yes, that is the problem. People are ungodly and unrighteous. That's a problem. Okay, we do things that we shouldn't do, and we don't do things that we should do. Ungodliness, unrighteousness. And he says this, where does that come from? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what he says is this, we, everybody is created with this knowledge about God. We don't know everything about God, but we know something. He says that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What he says is this, you know, I mean, you have, we're all in Colorado. You go outside and look at the mountains and you go, there must be something bigger than just me right? I mean, that most people, this is why it's very interesting, actually, if you look kind of just around the country, in mountain communities like Boulder and up in the Northeast and different places, it's not necessarily Christian, but very spiritual. Partially because people that live there, they just have this sense of there must be something beyond me. Because you can't, nobody stands by the mountains and goes, yep, I'm awesome. I mean, you feel a sense of just like, whoa, right? I mean, that just happens. So he says, God has been clearly perceived in what's been made. Now, it doesn't mean we know everything about God through looking at the mountains, but it means that there's something about this. You can know there's a creator, there's something big, there's something powerful, maybe there's something even beautiful, right? You can know some things about God. But he says what happens is that people suppress that truth. The people have an awareness of God and his reality, but they suppress that truth. They say, I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily this is a super conscious thing, okay? I'm not saying everyone that's an atheist says, I don't want to believe in God. But Paul is saying there's something in the heart that says, I don't want this truth. I don't want this truth. And not just in atheism, but about this God, about the God, the only God that we say, I don't want this to be true. I mean, just if, depending on where you are in Christianity or your faith or your faith journey is, is I mean, I, I doubt that you would be here tonight if you didn't at least have a sense that maybe there was something beyond you and an awareness that possibly, maybe I've kind of pushed this away. So here's what he says. What can be known is plain, because God has shown it, but it's suppressed, so they're without excuse, for although they knew God, now he doesn't mean they had this like close relationship with, he means there's this awareness, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, so here's what this means, and many of us maybe live like this too, we go, yeah, of course I believe in a God, do you live your life though, honoring him, giving thanks to him, is that your life? Paul says, where does ungodliness and unrighteousness come from? Well, there's this this suppression of, I don't want to believe who God is. I don't want to live my life honoring him and giving thanks to him. Instead, what happens? But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So even over time, it becomes more cloudy. We say, I don't want to believe this. And over time, it becomes more foolishness, seems more and more like wisdom Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, listen to this, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies. And that doesn't just mean what we do um, in like a physical sense. It just means our whole lives among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here's what he says happens. We suppress this truth about God and instead, instead we worship created things. It says they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Now he, he points out, you know, they do it with uh, birds and animals and creeping things. And then down here he says they serve the creature rather than the creator. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to just be some statue to a, an animal and a creeping thing, whatever that is, you know, a big old spider or something. Okay? It doesn't just have to be that. This, the essence of where unrighteousness and ungodliness comes from, so that's how Paul set this up, that there's unrighteousness and there's ungodliness, and where does that come from? It comes from... We suppress what we know about God, we claim to be wise, and exchange the glory of God. So God is glorious and amazing and powerful and beautiful and gracious and who he is as a person, and he calls us to know him and enjoy him, and instead we say, I'm going to exchange that truth for something else. Instead of the creator, I will worship created things. Now what's created? Everything. So we this is this is where the problem is. The problem is idolatry. And idolatry is when we worship anything other than God. When we exchange God's glory, his and this is what worship means. Worship means that we ascribe worth to something. That we say this has worth. This is amazing. This is awesome. This is glorious. The core problem is idolatry, which is when we exchange the truth of who God is for a lie. We exchange the creator for created things. So what is an idol? It's anything that is not God. It's anything that we replace that we exchange God for. So God should be the one that is most important in our lives, but instead this is. God is the one that has the most worth and the most that's worship, the most worth. But instead we say this has the most worth. God is the one we most love, but instead we exchange it for this. They did it with animals and birds and creeping things, we do it with whatever. We say, yes, I was made. So here we were made. Okay, God made us, not just to believe in him. God didn't just make us so that we would go, "I believe you're there." But to worship him, to see him as glorious, to what Paul said before, to give thanks to him and honor him and love him. We were made not to just believe in God, not to just even behave for God, but to love him and to worship him and to enjoy him. This is what we talked about last week. That's why God made us. But instead, what we do is we go, I don't want God. I'm going to exchange that for something else. So a great example of this is um, the movie Birdman. And I don't know if you saw Birdman. It's Michael Keaton. It won Best Picture last year, okay? And Birdman is about Michael Keaton as an actor, and he was a star in all of these superhero movies, okay? He was a star in all these superhero movies, and then he kind of became a washed-up actor. And now he is directing this play in New York, and it's really like he's trying to kind of get back. He's trying to get back, be known again, do something, because he's had this huge lull in his career. Basically, it's people are saying, real life, what actually happened to Michael Keaton, because he was Batman, and then you probably are like, Michael Keaton? Who's that? And then now he won an Oscar, so it worked, okay? So (laughs) there you go. Um, But here's, here, this is a great, I'm going to give you like a little um, quote from that movie that describes what I'm talking about. But Here, this is what an idol is. An idol is anything that takes the place that only God should. We're made to say, God, you have worth and glory. An idol is anything else that takes that place. An idol is anything else that we look to for our sense of identity and worth and value instead of God. See, we're made to go, God, you have worth, and thus in relationship with you, I have worth. An idol is anything else that we build our life on, build our identity on, center ourselves on. That's what idolatry is. We're made to worship God, give God glory, thank Him, honor Him. An idol is what we exchange that for. Okay, does that make sense? Here's what Michael Keaton teaches us about idolatry. So he's uh, getting in this argument with his daughter, because his daughter's like, dude, get over it. It's a play. And here's what happens. His name is Riggan. Riggan, listen to me. I'm trying to do something important. And she says, this is not important. It's important to me, all right? Maybe not to you or your cynical friends whose only ambition is to go viral, but to me, to me, the play, this is God. This is my career. This is my chance to do some work that actually means something. And then listen to what she says. Means something to who? You had a career before the third comic book movie, before people began to forget who was inside the bird costume. You're doing a play based on a book that was written 60 years ago for a thousand rich old white people whose only real concern is gonna be where they go to have their cake and coffee when it's over. And let's face it, dad, it's not for the sake of art. It's because you wanna feel relevant again. Well, there's a whole world out there where people fight to be relevant every day and you act like it doesn't even exist. Things are happening in a place that you willfully ignore, a place that has already forgotten you, I mean, who the star star are you? That's not what she said. You hate bloggers. You make fun of Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important. You're not important. Get used to it. Okay. Powerful, right? But do you ever hear that voice in your head? Because I do. An idol is anything we look to to give us importance, that I matter, that I'm not forgotten, that I should exist. That's what an idol is. For him, it was this play. For him, it was this play. For us, it can be anything. So, what is it for you? What is the problem? What the Bible teaches the problem is, is idolatry. That we worship other things instead of God. That we look to other things to be the sense of our identity, our worth. That we matter. An idol is anything that we go, if I have this, I matter. If I have this, it's okay that I exist. That I'm important. This is what I love the most, what I value the most, what I build my life for. Okay, so that's what the Bible says the problem is. How do we change? How do we change? Well, to change, we need to do three things, okay? And we'll walk through these in the rest of our time. We need to recognize what they are. Then we need to see why it is that they won't fulfill us, renounce them. It's three R's, okay? If you grew up Baptist, you'll be really happy today, okay? So... We've got to recognize them, we've got to renounce them, and then we've got to replace them. Okay? I don't usually do that kind of thing, but hey, why not? So here we go. Recognize them. How do we recognize what these things are in our life? Maybe for some of you, you already know. It's like, I know, I know what it is. If you said this to me, I'd cry like a baby if, if you were talking about my play. I already know what it is. Okay, but we have to, if we want to get if this is what the Bible says the problem is, is we worship other things instead of God, idols. First step in changing is we got to know what they are, okay? So f- to recognize them, what is the problem? How do we recognize them? How to know what they are? And the first thing that I want us to see is this. The Bible says it's not just what we do, okay, but it's why we do it. And here's a passage from Ezekiel, which is an Old Testament prophet that gives a little bit of light to helping us understand that idols are things that are not Just bad things or horrible things or just behaviors, but they're they're deep seated things in our hearts. So this is God talking to the prophet Ezekiel. Here's what he says. He's calling Ezekiel son of man. Son of man, these men, and he's talking about a group of leaders in Israel, people that should be worshiping God. These men have taken their idols into their hearts. So notice that God says an idol is not just a statue. It's something that is in your heart. It's not just, or think about it like what Paul said. It's not just ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's what's happening in the heart. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. That's just like they're tumbling over their sin. Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols in his heart, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. So listen to what this is saying. Idols are things that we have taken into our hearts that have estranged us, that's relational language, from God, that have distanced us from God, that we love now more than God. So idols are, this is important because idols are not bad things, oftentimes. They're good things that we've taken into our hearts such that they have replaced God. We've exchanged them for God. They're things that we have, t- so you know, in the in the old days, when people made idols, and they still do this in other parts of the world, the idols were, this is the God of beauty and this is the God of wisdom, and this is. those aren't bad things. Those are good things. But they're things that If you worship and replace with God, they, of course, they they become horrible things because they've estranged you from God. So, and Jesus, when he comes along, he says something very similar. He talks to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and he'll say things like, look, on the outside, you look great, but on the inside, your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are empty. So this this is really important because you may live a, totally upright, moral, follow every rule in the Bible, and still have idols that are in your heart. Things that you're living for instead of God. Things that you're getting your sense of worth and identity, like Riggin, instead of God. Or you may live a horrible life doing whatever the heck you want, and it's because there's idols in your heart. Okay, so how do we know what these are? How do we begin to recognize these idols. And I'm just going to read a list of questions. And um, I just want you to think about this, okay? And and you can think about it this week and think about it through the rest of our time here, but I'm just going to read a list of, you know, when you go to the doctor and they have you fill out 40 pages before you can see somebody, looking at you, Mark, Um, and they have you do that, they ask you a thousand diagnostic questions, Where's the pain? Where's this? What's your history with this? What's your history with that? Where's this happen? Where's that happen? Blah, 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 blah. And just all sorts of intrusive questions, right? And then you sign a privacy policy. That way they can share it on Facebook. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I'm not saying that to him. Just so you know, you're like, I'm not ever going to see him. Um, so here's some just diagnostic, diagnostic questions to help you think through. What, man, what, what are these in my life? And these are mainly, I got these from a couple sources, but mainly from a man named David Powelson, who's a Christian author and counselor. And here's what he says. So just think about this. And let me actually, I'm just going to pray. Because idols are things that, man, we got spiritual blindness to. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would even just now open our eyes. So Father, as I read through this list, would you open eyes and open hearts, Holy Spirit, even just use this time now to help us see what you want us to see. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Here's what he says, or here's some questions, okay? What do you seek, aim for, and pursue? What are you most thankful for? What would bring you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? What's the greatest pain or misery in your life? What do you fear? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? What are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What's everything working towards? What makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? What do you organize your life around? How do you spend your time? What are your priorities? What do you mainly, freely spend your money on? What do you compromise your faith for? So you say, I believe this, but in this situation, where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? So what do you run to? I can give you this list if anyone wants it. Just listen instead of necessarily trying to, ah. Whose performance matters to you? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Who can make it better, make it work, make it safe, make it successful? Who must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Whose love and approval do you need? Who are your role models? What kind of person do you think you ought to be or want to be? Who do you look down on? individuals or groups of people? What do you get defensive about? Somebody says, hey, you kind of like the Riggin and Sam scenario. Somebody's pointing out something in you. When do you get defensive? What gets you really encouraged and happy? What gets you really down and depressed? Early on, what do I want to make sure that people know about me? What do you sacrifice the most for in your life? What do you complain about? What do you see as your rights? What do you feel entitled to? What do you pray for? What what are most of your prayers about to God? What are you asking him for? What do you think about most often? What preoccupies or obsesses you? When your mind is just not working or not doing, when it's just on kind of neutral, where does it go to? What do you talk about? What's important to you? What attitudes do you communicate? And last one, what makes me feel the most self-worth? Of what am I the proudest? For what do I wanna be known? Those types of questions help us to begin to think about what has taken the place of God in my life? What do I love more than God? What am I really building my life on? What do I really look to for a sense of worth and value? What have I really said is most important? And maybe one or more, maybe a handful or just one of those questions most stood out to you. And here's the thing, if if you're a Christian, it's not that confessionally with our mouth that we say, I worship another God. But it's functionally in our lives. What is it that we really are after? What is it that we really love? What is it that really has become God to us, that defines us? What is it really? Not just what we say with our mouths, but what we say with our lives, what we say with our hearts, and what happens in our lives. That's idols taken into the heart that God is talking about, not just what do people say. I mean, God says often in the Old Testament things like, you confess, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. They've been estranged from me, like Ezekiel wrote. Because there's idols that have taken residence in our hearts. So, first step is we have to recognize what they are. The second thing is we have to renounce them. And this is what I'm getting at with this, is why should we be done with our idols? Like, why should we not want them anymore? Why should we go... I don't want that. Okay, maybe something got stirred in your heart. Maybe God opened your eyes and revealed something to you. Maybe you've known it for a long time. Maybe it got more clarified. Maybe it's the first time a light bulb went on. I don't know, okay? But maybe something clicked. Why should you not want that to be what you're building your life on and worshiping and getting your sense of value and worth from? Why? And often what happened in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is that the prophets would tear down the idols. And I don't mean literally, although sometimes they did. I mean, they would show why they were foolish. So this is just a part. But just listen to some of the logic behind this. This is Jeremiah, and he says, Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God, we set our hope on, you? for you do all these things. Even just something simple, he's saying, these gods can't make it rain? This God can do that. This God, they can't, they, they're worthless. They can't. Isaiah has this whole long diatribe where he goes through and he says, they're, they're dumb and they're deaf. They're made of wood. He's kind of sadly mocking the craftsman that builds, builds this beautiful statue and then says, you made that. And now you're worshiping it? That doesn't make any sense. You just built it. You know where it came from. And he says, it's, I mean, he's knocking them down. Elijah, one time, maybe you've heard this story. Elijah, one of God's prophets, sets up this altar. And, and, he, and, he, and he, uh, he's over here. And then all the prophets of this one God are over here. And they say, let's talk to our God and say, light it on fire. The story's long and I can't give you all the details, but these guys over here, they're doing all this stuff and their God's not lighting it on fire. And Elijah, he's like, where's your God? Is he sleeping? And then literally he says this, is he on the toilet? Maybe he's busy. Not joking, okay, look it up. It's in 1 Kings, okay? And he says, maybe he's on the toilet. Where is he at? And he's just making fun of that God can't do anything. It won't give you what you think it will give you. That there has to be a posture in our heart that looks at the idols in our lives and says, why should we not worship these gods? Why should we not worship them? What is it that's so destructive about them? You know, I think three of the best kinds of people that know this about the things that we say, this will give me worth, I'll be happy if I have this, this is what matters. When I think about this, It's married people, addicts, and celebrities. And I'm serious. I'm not trying to make a joke. Um, So recovering addicts, they know, okay, recovering addicts, they know, man, I went after this thing, and I tried, and I tried, and it never fulfilled. I thought one more drink, and that'll help. If I, okay, that's not satisfying anymore, I'll go to this. That's not, and they know, man, it never works. I need help. Or married people, before they get married, most married people think, man, once I get married, life, all I ever wanted was a spouse. And then you get married and you go, this is freaking hard. What happened? Two days ago, you thought this was going to solve all your problems. In celebrities, some celebrities, you often hear them say this. They say things like, man, I reached the top. I was reading a quote by Tom Brady. It's like, man, I got three, this was a while ago, I got three Super Bowl rings I've reached it all, but is this it? Is this all there is? Or you'll hear people like just other celebrities that say, "Man, I'm you know I'm a model and I'm an, and I've got it all, and I still think, man, I'm ugly," or I still think I'm a horrible actor, even though they've won awards and you know I mean all I've got to just keep got to get more. So why is it? we should renounce our idols, because they will not fulfill us. They will not deliver what they promise they will deliver. One of the best things that I've read about this is by a man named David Foster Wallace, who was an atheist, and he did a commencement speech at Kenyon College. He talked about idolatry, and this is what he said, and this guy's not a Christian, but he's very wise about the inner workings of our heart, and here's what he said. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. I don't agree with everything he says, okay, but... Anyways. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble, four noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship, now listen to this, anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. If that's what's most important to you, you'll always never feel like it's enough. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. I disagree. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Now, that's spot on says, we just kind of go into this. It's just the default mode of the heart. That we just, we, everybody worships. And it will, okay, why should we renounce the idols? Oh, there's more. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. That was like the best part. I can't believe I left that out, okay? So why should we be done with them? First, it's because what he tells us, they will eat you alive. They will damage you. You will never be able to have enough, whatever it is. So first, why do we renounce them? Other than the fact that they're false gods, they will eat us alive. The things you think, this is most important to me, This will bring me value. This will bring me worth. This is what I love the most. It will eat you alive. But second, it will also do that to your relationships. It doesn't just just damage you. It will damage your relationships. Because, and there's many reasons for this. I'll just give you a couple. One of them is this. It creates division. I mean, if if, if I value intellect, then I am going to judge everybody that's dumb. If for me, my God is wisdom, then if you're not as educated or as intelligent or as articulate as I am, then I'm just gonna, I'm maybe, maybe I'll completely separate from you and not hang out with you, but I'll just look down at you. I'll think you're less worthy than I am if that's my God. This is where, every, this is where racism comes from. This is where classism comes from. This is where, I mean, the source in our hearts where if this is what is most important and valuable to us. And we look down on other people that don't share that. That's one reason it damages our relationships. Another is this. If you just have people that have similar, but you've got conflicting things. So if I value, and a lot of times this happens in marriages, people have two different idols, two different gods, and then they come together and say, let's worship this God. No, 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 no. Let's worship this God. If, If for you it's control, everything being ordered, and for this person, it's freedom and let's just go with the flow. Those idols collide. This is how I know that life matters, money. This is how I know that life matters, family. Those often collide. So it not only damages us, it damages our relationships. What is the problem in this world? What is the problem in us? It is that we worship False gods. So we must recognize what they are. We must renounce them, which is to say, you are not a real God. And finally, we must replace them. What do we put in the place of our idols? Because the truth is, we can't just remove them. You can't just say, get out of here, because then what happens? If Riggin, in the example, Michael Keaton, if he would have said, okay, daughter, you're right. This play is no longer God to me. Instead, you are God to me. My family is God to me. I'll build my life life around loving you and serving you and pleasing you. Has anyone ever done that to another person? It doesn't work out, because they'll fail you, and you'll fail them. It's interesting, we had, um, I don't know, maybe a month and a half ago or something now, we had a discussion in my house, um, a ladies' night, about body image. And, you know, David Foster Wallace even mentioned this, that if beauty is your God, then you'll always be fearing that you're ugly and all that kind of stuff, okay? And I I was talking to somebody afterwards, one of the gals, and she was saying that, what our culture often does is says something like this. Not always, okay? But something like this. Don't, it doesn't matter. Don't worship your beauty. Don't put your worth and your value and your beauty. You're smart. You are wise. That's what really matters. It's not about your beauty and, and the outward. It's about what do you do with your mind? And she felt this pressure. And this is what's been communicated to her all the time. Someone might say to you, look, don't don't build your identity on getting a spouse. That's not what matters. Don't let somebody else control you and define you. And you have to have their love. What really matters is find find what your calling is in life. Find your vocation and pour yourself into your career. That's it. And it's it's just one God for another God, instead of worshiping the true God. So here's the problem. We, what do we put in the place of our idols? Because we can't just get rid of it because something else will take its place. Like David Foster Wallace said, like Paul said, we are always worshiping, always. If we don't have a choice not to worship. We will worship. So if you say, crap, I've been worshiping other people's approval, I've been worshiping my job and success or my spouse, or I've been worshiping this, I'm just going to get rid of that. Renounce it. Second R. Okay? I want to hear people walking around. <laughs> second R. Okay? If that happens, something else will take its place. Because we always will worship something. We have to have a sense of worth and value and meaning. So it's obviously got to be Jesus. Okay? That's obviously the answer, right? It's got to be the true God. How does that happen? What has to happen is that we have to see Jesus as more beautiful, more powerful, more worthy, more glorious than all those other things are. An old Puritan writer called this the expulsive, something expels, the expulsive power of a new affection. What happens is we don't just say, stop loving that, stop loving that, stop loving that. We say look at this. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this amazing? And a new love expels out an old love. So, you know, growing up, you liked a lot of stupid movies, right? If you ever go back and watch them. Some of them, they're nostalgic, but a lot of them, they're stupid, right? But you liked them, but this is what didn't happen. At 13, you didn't go, those movies are all dumb, and now I'm going to start liking good movies. What just happened is you started watching other movies that were good movies, and you developed a love for those kind of movies. Or if you used to like American cheese, and now you like nice cheese, you didn't one day decide, I'm done with American cheese. I renounce it. What happened, maybe you did, and good for you. What happened is you started a new love, crowded out the old love. And this is what we need. We need to look at Jesus and see him Love him so that that crowds out the old loves. But how does that happen? And here's what the Bible says. Shortest verse I'll put up here. Look at that. Doesn't take up four slides. It's not even one slide. And this is what John says. And this is taught all throughout the Bible. But what John says is, we love because he first loved us. So here's what idolatry is. We love something more than God. So how do we love God instead? How do we love God instead of what we love now? How do we love God instead of our idols? We look at the fact that he has loved us. John says we love because he first loved us. Which is this, the more that you begin to look at Jesus, to know Jesus, to see his character, to see what he's done, to see what he's like to see how he has pursued us and brought us into relationship with him, The more you, I mean, John says this after a long discussion in chapter 4 about all the amazing love that Jesus has showed on us as people that have been enemies of his, but that he still says, I'm, I, everything I said before, that the bad people are in and the good people are out, that I'm going after you and I love you. And John says, you want to develop love for God that crowds out love for the other things? Look at his love for you. Look at his love for you and the fact that you're a sinner and he's forgiven you. Look at the fact that you're not important and you don't matter, but God has said, I absolutely value you and love you. Look at the fact that though we haven't earned anything, God says, you have my righteousness. You're my son. You're my daughter. He says, look at the way that God has loved you. That's what then builds in your heart a love for him. And here's the thing. When that happens, when you see that God gives to us everything that we look for elsewhere, we go to these idols for comfort, for security, for safety, for for a sense of worth and value, that I'm important, that I matter. And when we see, man, God gives that to me so much better, so much more freely, it begins to crowd out those other things. And, And here's something really important. I'm not talking about, okay, hear me on this. I'm not talking about going, oh, I love this thing, but God loves me, so I love him. Okay. It's an experience that the Holy Spirit has to make real to your heart. I can't do that. It's not just saying, I look for comfort over here, but God is a God of all comfort. Okay. It's an actual, it's a taste. An old pastor writer named Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He said, it's the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting that honey is sweet. So I can tell you, do you know how much God loves you? And you can go, yeah, of course I do. It says it right right there. But do you taste that? Do you taste that? Here's how Paul says it. And he's writing this to Christians. And I want you just, so these are people that have already known this, but need to know it deeper and sweeter. Here's what he says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So this is what he's praying for, for his church. From whomever he family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, instead of idols, through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, to understand in a deep, heart way, with all the saints, all the other Christians, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this is his prayer again and again for the church. I want you to know how much, how high, how low, how deep, how wide that God loves you so that Christ dwells in your heart and every idol is crowded out. The problem in our life is that we worship other gods. We say, this is what I need. This is how I will matter. This is what's important to me. This is what I love. This is what I build my life on. And then we don't get those things. We try and 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 it's a struggle and it's striving and it's going and it's going and it's going. It's not just the things that we do. It's not just the behaviors. It's what's happening in our hearts. And the grace of God, the grace of God is that he loves you even in the middle of that. That's how good God is. I mean, how good God is is that he knows we worship false gods, and he says, come back to me. Your heart's estranged from me. Come back to me. Because Jesus has already paid for all that. Jesus has already died for all that. And here's the thing. This is a process. I mean, Paul is praying this for people that already became Christians. This is a process that for the rest of our lives we go through. How real is the love of Christ to you? And I hope it becomes more and more and more real and that it crowds out every other idol that's a process but it's something we should be intentional about seeing that's what hap- i mean that's that's what reading the bible is for that's what praying is for that's part of what gathering together on a sunday is for to see to see how much god loves you that he would forgive you that he would cleanse you that he would go after you and adopt you that he would name you and give you a new identity that every here, so when we take communion we're done now okay so when we take communion What we remember is that Jesus shed his blood for us and had his body broken for us. And here's what's better about Jesus than every other idol out there. Every idol says, serve me, and then you'll have what you're looking for. Jesus says, I come to serve you. Every other idol demands that we work for them. Work hard, you'll get your beauty. Work hard, you'll get your success. Work hard, you'll get that spouse. Every other idol says, work for me. Jesus says, no, 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 I've come to work for you. I mean, every other idol says, if you have me, like Regan, if you have me, you matter. So come and get me. Work hard for me, then you'll be important. And Jesus says, no, I've come to you. I've worked hard for you. And I give you an identity based on what I've done, not on what you do. Every other idol says this. It says, work for me. And when you fail, which we do, I'm going to punish you. Guilt. Shame. You didn't do it. And Jesus says, when you fail, I'm not the God that devours you and eats you alive. When you fail, I die on the cross for you and forgive you. Every other idol that we run after, that we think will bring us life, brings us death. Jesus is the only God that doesn't demand our life for worth, but gives us his life and his worth and his value. That's love. And when you begin to see that, when your eyes open to that, and when the eyes of your heart are open to that, then love crowds out all the stupid false gods that we erect in our hearts. That's what we are about as a church. That more and more people would know that and see that and see that there is a true God. We don't have to be enslaved to the false gods. There is a true God that loves you, that cares for you. That's good news. That's gospel. That's what Jesus came to announce. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your love. Thank you that though we run after false gods all the time, even like we sang before, your love never fails and you come after us over and over and over and over again. God, thank you that you are relentless in your pursuit of us, that you want such good for us, that you want our hearts and our minds to know you, to be awakened to you, to see you. And I pray, Lord, that all of us here, and just as Paul prayed, that the height and the depth and the breadth and the width, that we would see all of the dimensions of your love. Lord, help us to see Help us to see, make make your love even more and more clear, your gracious love of forgiveness, your pursuing love, your adopting love, all of your love, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen.